and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, uh, Bitcoin has been surging again lately. Yeah, um, I think as we record this, it's currently above 8,000, right? Yeah, uh, it's been fluctuating a little bit, but obviously one of the things that happens that every time Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies start to spike, interest follows soon thereafter. It's one of these things where when it's down, suddenly people go quiet and stop talking about it and pretend they were never involved. And then when it's surging, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I've, I'm interested in that stuff. It's uh, very much a great example of narrative following price. Uh, yes, indeed. I actually joked on Twitter earlier today that now we're going to see all the people that scrubbed blockchain from their Twitter bios and LinkedIn profiles. They're all going to start adding it back in. But I think when it comes to the Bitcoin price, you know, I know a lot of people watch it sort of purely out of entertainment value. But we've talked before on the show about the importance of the network effect and the idea that if you're actually going to get people using Bitcoin, you need to generate a buzz, right? Absolutely. So obviously the buzz is picking up. Bitcoin itself has been around uh, for about a decade now, basically exactly 10 years, more or less. But what I think a lot of people don't know or they've never really thought about is for, for so long, many years prior to Bitcoin, decades really, people had been trying to work on the problem of digital money in some way or another, whether it's anonymous payments online or payments that didn't have some sort of centralized clearinghouse to facilitate them. Bitcoin isn't just a new thing. It's kind of the uh, the solution to a problem that people had been uh, focused on for a while. Right. So I think the notion or the exploration of digital currencies kind of started growing in tandem with the internet, right? And it was sort of a solution to a problem that the internet and um, new technology suddenly threw up. Didn't you read a book on this, by the way? Weren't you uh, really excited about something? Yeah, there's a great book coming out this summer by Finn Brunton all about this. Uh, but yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, obviously in the real world and the physical world, I can pay you in cash and no third party, no uh, you know, legal authority has to know about it. But very early on, people sort of intuited that as our economy became more digital, that that would be a problem that would need to be solved. So today I'm very excited uh, because we are going to be talking to a guest who was at the uh, forefront of this search for a solution to this problem. Truly, I think everyone in the space would agree, one of the godfathers of digital currency, uh, a true pioneer, an inventor of digital currency long before Bitcoin ever came around, who could tell us all about this uh, prehistory of uh, cryptocurrency and where he sees the space now. So, Without further ado, I want to bring in David Shom. He is the CEO and founder of Elixir, but very early on for decades, like I said, one of the godfathers of the space. Really appreciate you joining us. Hey, it's so great to be here with you both. Let's start, David. Just tell us, how did you, when did you get interested for the first time in solving this problem, in seeing that as the world got more digital, there would need to be a way for transactions to be, at least in some sense, anonymous? Well, actually, 82, I published a paper about blind signatures, which was the eCash technology that I later deployed in the, in the mid-90s. So eCash, it was not a 
cryptocurrency as we know it now. Why don't you explain uh, what was eCash? Well, actually, eCash is slightly different and in some sense slightly better than perhaps cr- cryptocurrencies in that current cryptocurrencies are generally, think of them more like digital checks. They okay. move money from one wallet ID, one account, your account to someone else's account. Right. Whereas with uh, eCash, it was a the first digital bearer instrument. It was a number that was worth money. And one of the additional features of eCash was because it was a digital bearer instrument and the first such thing, sure. it could have this special blind signature property, which meant that when you withdrew one of these from your bank account, and you know your bank account was reduced in value, and you, yeah. they gave you this signature, public key digital signature. It's a cryptographic operation they performed on a number that you sent them. That that signature was worth, let's say, one dollar that came out of your account. Well, you were able to transform that signature right. into a a different uh, and unrelated form that was still clearly signed worth one dollar, but absolutely uncorrelatable to the number that you sent to your bank. So that meant that you had the money. There was no way that they could stop you from spending it or even know where you would spend it or if you had spent it. So this is an actual improvement over these check-based systems where much can be traced. So... I have two questions based on that. But one, was eCash dependent on the banking system? Could it only work if you had a bank account and it was sort of deriving the number from that transaction? And B, what was the problem exactly? We alluded to this in the intro, but what was the problem that you were trying to solve with this invention? Well, uh, to answer part A, we issued what were called cyberbucks. This is what today is called an airdrop, in effect. So what I said was, we're only going to issue a million of these, and anyone who wants to put up a digital shop, we will give them 100. And there were like over 100 shops set up. And if you go to my website, you can still see their logos and click on them and see kind of what their homepages looked like in many cases in those days. This was way before, really, the web or electronic commerce. It was very early right. Uh, days. So I invented eCash more, truth be told, to demonstrate that it was possible to do all the things that you need to do in the digital world as a consumer while still maintaining your privacy yourself. Is it like a today called digital sovereignty, keeping your own keys so that you didn't have to rely on others to safely, you know, to not look at your personal data or to store it safely? Just before we move off this specifically, I want to make sure people understand exactly how the mechanism works. So the idea was, I mean, we don't have to get too technical, but the idea was essentially if this had spread and if this had become well adopted, the idea was one could take money out of their bank and have it would be on a card or they'd have some sort of card that would represent this. This was a purely digital process. So your computer would create a random number itself, which no one else could predict or imagine, right? right? And then it would, we say blind it, it would hide it in a second in a key. And then it would send that hidden random number, which is like this would be the serial number of your digital $1 banknote 
later, it would hide the digital serial number by encrypting it with another random key, right. send that hidden serial number in. The bank would use the secret key that only it has, which it gives it the exclusive ability to validate these digital banknotes. It would then return that signed hidden number to you. And then because of the magic of commutativity, you know, like, you know, three yeah. times four is equal to four times three, you could divide out the hiding layer and now you would have the signature, the actual bank's validating signature on your serial number without any residue from the hiding. And then the recipient of this money, so you get the money out of your bank, the recipient then has something that they can deposit in their bank account. Absolutely. And the, but then the, there was the old the little double spending yeah. problem so there's the bank would they'd have to send it into the bank to make sure that you hadn't spent it elsewhere. Okay. But there was a more sophisticated version that we developed uh, that was in joint work with Moninor and, and Amos Fiat that if you did double spend it you would in effect be digitally signing a confession to this hmm. effect. Whereas if you spent each one only once, you would never reveal enough information to allow your identity to be linked. And that's because when you spent those those special types of coins, you would have to answer a random query. And if you'd answer two questions, it's kind of like when the police interrogate you. You know, If you answer two questions, yeah. they, they don't fit together and then they realize, oh, it's you. So I'm guessing, you know, we're talking about, um, I guess, the, the early 90s when, when you did this. It was the early 80s, right? Well, I wrote a technical paper on eCash in 1982, which was the same year okay. that I organized the International Association for Cryptologic Research and held the first really scientifically sponsored conference on cryptography to counter the National Security Agency director's threatening of, to scientific organizations, uh, draconian legal measures if they were to even have sessions, let alone conferences on cryptography. So I organized a conference without using any electronic communication that created, in effect, an international scientific association. And then when the people all appeared there, I said, okay, now you're all members by virtue of having paid your registration fee and we'll have our next event in Italy uh, in the spring. And here's the, you know, and so I did all that without ever using the phone. Uh, so the guys in the front row are all from the NSA and they all turned green. <laughs> so you're developing this in the 80s, and then in the 90s, I guess... Well, I, the idea was published in the 80s, and then in the 90s, the Dutch government, because I was based in Amsterdam uh, at the Center for Mathematics and Computer Science, and held a leading group of cryptography research there, and the Dutch government came to us and said, we want to do uh, road toll pricing, like sort of like, I think it's often called Easy Pass these days, yeah. right? the highway speed on without lane constraints, and uh, we don't want the drivers to have to reveal their identity or their, their, who they are to these, uh, to these radio frequency transceivers that they pass under. And can you do this? And I said, yes, I've, I just happen to have the answer, blind signatures, this eCash. So they said, great, prove to us that it can work. I recruited like a dozen uh, college students, said, you guys build this in 10 days, I'll send you and your girlfriends to Disney World for, for two weeks. And they turned their like student housing into a, a lab work 24 hours a day, and they did it. We showed the Dutch government, and they were like, "Wow, that's cool!" One in one yard of road travel at 200, you know, like at 100 kilometers an hour, could make this privacy-protected payment. And so, 
I just took the contract they gave us to the bank and said, hey, we got this contract from the government to make this. And they said, oh, great. You can borrow against that. No problem. And that was DigiCash. So what I was going to ask is, you know, it's 2019 now, and clearly we're not using DigiCash. Uh, we're arguably not even really using a lot of other cryptocurrencies for, for payments. So so what happened? Like, what went wrong? Why wasn't there more adoption? The real question that I was fighting for at that point was the the web over the, like, what I used to call the 500-channel guys, the, the set-top boxes. I don't know if you yeah. recall, but it wasn't a done deal that we'd all be using the internet and the right. web, right? It was more like you'd have this closed box and it would deliver video, but also like the web interface, but it would be a closed system and that would, you know, you'd have an account with it and that there would be no real need for payments. And it, it all seemed quite plausible. And there were a lot of big actors supporting that. And it was kind of a, uh, an insurgency that was pushing for an open web. And I think that the Scientific American article that I published in the mid 80s, which showed that you could do all these interactions online, protecting your own uh, privacy and your own information using your own keys was instrumental in getting people to realize that the web was could work for, for everything that would be needed in future and was a much better option than this kind of closed set-top box option. Do you think the, uh, the closed set-top box people are kind of winning again? Because I think that's a big... People look at the web and it doesn't feel as open and it feels dominated by a handful of companies and people don't use much uh, technologies that could obfuscate their privacy. Is the is this is part of the reason that we see this revival of interest in cryptocurrencies in blockchain as a response to the fact that the open web is losing? Well, that's a that's a really interesting way to look at it. And I, th I think the open web has won because my definition of winning is deployment wins. Right. So we have now used this approach to get a very powerful and very easy to use computer in the hands of everyone, half the people on the planet. And that that's a huge win. And what that has done to answer, come back to your, your point is the transparency and the ease to access to information like what your show provides. Yeah. It, it is revealing that the web isn't kind of what it could be and what, it, and that all these strange things are happening behind the scenes and people are have become very upset about it i thought that's the the sense of the of the public that i get they really are starting to recognize that it's not just you know strong end to end encryption what's needed is the protection of the metadata the whole social graph who you talk to and when where you are how you interact with things all that ancillary information which you know, they've been distracted from being concerned about now is something the public is aware of. And so I think we're, it's, it's all teed up to the, just the perfect point where the Maslowian level is about to do a phase change. So now we have smartphones that are so handy and cheap and work great and can do everything. And now people are saying, okay, it works. Now what I, what I really need is privacy. that's striking to me listening to this is you know 1982 like very few people 
were thinking about any of these problems, even just this idea that there would be something called an Internet or that there were different versions of how it could have gone, the more closed version, and anticipating that privacy, which is an incredibly salient topic in 2019, would ever be a, have to be a thing that we have to worry about. Setting aside digital money for a second, just tell us about like how this became something that you anticipated. The group of people who were thinking about this, how did it... Tell us about that scene and anticipating all this stuff. I'm not sure there was much of a scene. It was me, and <laughs> I wrote about this very extensively, and so much so that my work was invited to the best journals and republished in a bunch of languages, and then uh, I laid out two scenarios. Basically, it's what's played out, right, that, that privacy technology could pr- protect people and allow them digital sovereignty, if you will, in today's terminology, or it could go the other way, and that is that all this information could be used to control society under the pretense of, you know, preventing criminal use of of systems, and that this would lead to a kind of battle between these two approaches. The the winner would determine whether we'd have, like, a free democratic society or we'd have a kind of totalitarian society that's orchestrated by, let's say, AI helping evil actors control everything. And I think that that choice is now, finally, after all these years, become quite apparent to people. And also, it's much more imminent than people realize, because all the AI and, 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 and massive data and all that stuff is going way ahead behind the scenes. And I think people are starting to get a sense of that and they're saying hey wait a minute this is this is a pretty dangerous situation democracy is a key aspect of all this too and not to be right. left out so I've done a lot of work on voting and I th- and I think that all this digital privacy is a critical and necessary ingredient for democracy right. and in a and that's kind of to me that's kind of the meta issue that the the public gets to decide what kind of world they want and the only real way to do that is if they have uh, the ability to see whatever they want, to communicate with people, and to pay for or be paid for information or supplying of it, subscribe to your your show, whatever, if right. they had to pay for it, uh, without anyone being able to notice that or stop them. So, David, I have um, what might be a, a stupid question, but when it when it comes to that m- metadata issue, when it comes to the problems of sovereignty, it seems like we expend collectively so much energy, or at least the the cryptographic community expends so much energy trying to solve this problem, you know, creating anonymous payments and similar things. Would it not just be easier for the government or the regulators to limit um, the use, uh, corporations' use of of information, of metadata? Or is the issue that you don't trust the government at all to do that in, in a fair and um, unbiased way. I came back, so to speak, into this space, truth be told, when the Snowden revelations were made public and I went to my cryptography conference that I'd founded. This is, we have one every year and there's two others that were sponsored by organizations, published in journals and so on. It was a big deal now. We have like half a dozen workshops uh, around the world and there, so the about 700 leading cryptographers in the world are there 
And I know a lot of them, the yeah. older ones, anyways. And uh, you're just, but I, I realize we didn't even establish that's your background, right? Yeah, so I'm generally thought of as a like yeah. I published a bunch of articles yeah. on cryptography for a long time, more than anyone else right. in the world. Sorry, I didn't mean to divert. Even five years after I stopped publishing, that's what the publisher told me. I don't really know, but I'm not academic really anymore. But uh, I was at the at this conference, and no one seemed very concerned about the Snowden revelations. But to me. It was really shocking because I I never really believed or was certain that the government was spying on everything. I, I remained open to that. I, I yeah I would I like to believe there was a benevolent uh, information security aspect to, to governance. But when it was revealed that they were really doing the worst possible things we could imagine, and and the people in the field were hardly uh, shocked by it because they make a living yeah. kind of you know being a part of the what do you call it? Like the crypto industrial complex, you know, educational complex. That I, I just had to find a way to speed up all my old work, which I did. So I, I made it a thousand times faster, which no one had done in 35 years. The, the mixing, that was the missing ingredient in the eCash. So to hide where you're sending the money from. Let's talk about uh, the sort of closer prehistory to Bitcoin. So we, as we established, Bitcoin came out in 2009, I think, or into 2008. People had been working very towards this goal for a while. Ecash was one of them. There was a famous mailing list called the Cypherpunk mailing list. You, I believe you, you participated in that mailing list, right? The Cypherpunks all maintained that the, uh, my work inspired right. them. So your name is, is mentioned all over those archives. It was the technology that I developed which enabled their position. So at that point, how much were you talking to the people working on this problem, thinking about the solutions that you had come up with, talk about the opportunities? Like, how much were you sort of uh, in communication with the people who ultimately were getting closer to solving Bitcoin, basically? I filed my dissertation at Berkeley into the library in 82 without releasing the copyright to dissertation abstracts. So the three copies in the library and the archive there were the only copies that were, let's say, publicly available in principle. Now, it turns out that there were some times that they were checked out. And it's very interesting to go look at those little slips of paper and see the dates and so on. But that dissertation laid out in code how to build a blockchain. And, and recently, there's a refereed article that appeared in uh, IEEE Security and Privacy. It's a pretty good uh, journal. Established that that dissertation included all the aspects of modern blockchains, permission, um, and unpermission, sort of corporate and the open ones, except for the proof of work, which was presented like 10 years later at the crypto conference that I mentioned. And I was sitting there in the audience thinking, that's weird. They want to use this to protect against spam. Maybe you could use it for other things, but I'm not going to think about it because they both were working at IBM and it's probably patented completely and they already thought about it. So I, I didn't think, oh, maybe we could use this to solve, uh, you know, improve electronic money. So in October 2008, the, you know, the famous Bitcoin Satoshi Nakamoto white paper comes out. What did you think when you read it? Or when did it first come to your attention? And what was your reaction? Did you go like, oh, this sounds a lot like my dissertation? <laughs> well, it's kind of a blend of of my dissertation and the kinds of electronic money systems that we worked on back in the day. But honestly, 
what I thought was, gee, this is a potentially very powerful mechanism, could possibly be used by government for various purposes. It might have bad implications for voting that's not done in a polling place in terms of vote buying. It might be able to be used to pay people to do things that are antithetical to democracy or maybe that are supportive of democracy in emerging countries. So I thought it's a, like it's a very powerful extra uh, state kind of mechanism. And that was, to me, the, the dramatic thing about it. You know, it's one thing to say that two cryptographers can do send messages back and forth all right. day long, but government can just, like, turn off their phones or, you know, see that they're doing that. You can't be anonymous. You're not really protected unless you're in a large group. And what, what Bitcoin did was it said, hey, we're going to have so many people participating in this from so many different jurisdictions that this is going to be outside of the control of government. And I think, to me, that's the key thing. That's the real distinguishing factor. The the, the, the technology is uh, arguably a bit crude and primitive, but it, it apparently gets the job done. And you're definitely not Satoshi, right? I don't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You tried, Joe. The state of things now. Obviously, Bitcoin is massively bigger than almost anyone could have guessed. We have thousands of other different coins, blockchain projects, spin-off ideas. What are you working on and what do you see as the opportunities today? Well, there's a tremendous amount going on in the blockchain space. Sort of a lot of it's kind of a little bit behind the scenes and uh, this is amazing how many big actors are kind of working on blockchain projects. So, uh, it's 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 extraordinarily exciting and there are sort of scenarios where these kind of mechanisms really help maintain our kinds of civilization if government really starts to weaken more. And I think a lot of people are worried about that uh, uh, to some extent because of the transparency of the web. But the real killer app, so we also used to call it, in the modern world is clearly messaging integrated with payments, with popular applications in the same namespace. This is what WeChat has in China, and it's essentially what Facebook is turning into, if you believe what they say, that all their new users are basically just chat users. And So it's WeChat with blockchain inside. So that means we don't keep the metadata. In fact, we have a way to destroy it using a mixing technology, which I also published in the 80s uh, and found this way to speed up after the Stone Revelation. So it's a payment system based, uh, once again, on digital bearer instruments, denominated digital coins, and a solution to the who's talking to whom, the mixing, the uh, metadata problem, integrated and we have a way to allow the, the dApps to run securely off-chain so that it doesn't depend on the chain like the current uh, major chain. So it's, I think, the killer app that will displace current dominant, you know, just like so many times we've seen, it seems like the major social networking systems are undisplaceable. And the next thing you know, everyone's moving over to the next new thing because yeah. because they get better privacy. That happened with like Telegram, right? So this is metadata protection, a whole other level beyond and so what people are starting to recognize is the real issue, not the end-to-end encryption that like Telegram provides. So I think we'll see people move over to our platform and they'll 
then their social graph, who they communicate with and when. They'll have integrated payments, as I mentioned, for this is really essential for democracy. And we've got it all working on a blockchain. We've got tremendous support from the community. We've got almost 900 nodes that have volunteered to operate our system without making any money off it. So an anonymous payment system with an anonymous messaging platform attached so that the entire sort of transaction becomes anonymous. Well, I would, to me, it's not so much the anonymity because you are able to establish who you are and you you do have the benefit of knowing who you're communicating with and so on. And you can always reveal, since this blockchain based, you know, chat today doesn't really give you the ability to prove that you sent a certain message. So it can be used as a replacement for email, which is an important thing for developing countries. So, and it's also censorship resistant. You know, it's hard to kind of stop people from being able to do it because they can access it through any one of our uh, nodes. So it's a, it's a pseudonymous self-sovereign identity based messaging integrated with payments, but then it's also an open two-sided business model platform for dApps. Okay. With that caveat, this is something I often wonder about cryptocurrencies, but again, it feels like uh, developers spend a lot of time working on the underlying technology of crypto, trying to make the blockchain or whatever more efficient. How much does technology actually matter when it comes to cryptocurrencies? Are people basing their use case or their buying and selling of you know something like Bitcoin on the underlying technology, or is it just first mover advantage? How much does it matter? I believe that being able to, to do untraceable messaging to solve the metadata problem at the speed needed for consumer transactions, which is like 10-second latency, you know, from initiation of sending a message, receiving it, or making a payment and having it be final, is a key enabler for taking the blockchain out of its current kind of hodl uh, investment uh, kind of uh, mode and making it a mass consumer product. And I, and I think that that phase change is what the technology breakthrough that I've established is like a thousand X speed up in this in the in the messaging privacy uh, allows. So in that sense, I think technology plays a very key role there. And I think that there's also a second answer part of the question is, you know, about good money. It's all about good money. And if, if I think that a Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever popular crypto you, you, you think of could be displaced by one that is arguably stronger and even though there's a lot of momentum and brand and, and, and value and so on, because it's all about good money. And I think one of the things that our Elixir technology has going for it in that regard is that it is based on quantum-resistant cryptography, so-called random functions. No one else is. And that makes it something that nation-states can trust. And so this kind of cryptography, it's the only kind that they use to protect their national security uh, information and command and control systems and so on. And so it's, it's actually very important for developing countries or even countries like Japan who are worried that you know China's coming in and dominating with with Alipay that they it's if it's a kind of digital imperialism what you want is a level playing field between countries so that the small countries can also introduce innovative products and safely allow sophisticated financial services to come in from abroad to create economic growth we have to wrap up but uh, one last question do you ever worry 
about all this technology in the hands of people? I mean, obviously, you look at something like the Snowden revelations or various other things, or even the financial collapse, and that uh, gives rise to a lot of well-deserved skepticism about centralized authorities, whether they be governments or banks. But do you ever worry about the sort of complete flip side and what happens when institutions that have essentially provided some sort of order to society for centuries or decades suddenly get deeply undercut in their ability to maintain control of communication and transactions? Yes, I think that it's obviously a vulnerability to stability if these major institutions were to be really disrupted. And I think they recognize that and they're acting behind the scenes. I'm getting on a plane in a couple of days to go visit a, one of the major central banks of the world invited me there. The people, you know, and I've been involved with these sort of folks for quite a while. They're all working m- desperately behind the scenes to try to find a way that they can issue a digital currency that's uh, really, you know, worthy of, of their backing. And, and uh, so I don't think that they'll just, as, as this technology goes mainstream, right. the regulatory, you know, people recognize that it's really important for privacy and security and democracy. The regulatory impediments will will fall away and be, you know, forgotten. And, and I think it, just like all financial services innovation, you know, it's when the, eventually when it becomes mainstream, it's all happily accepted. And I think then the, these mainstream organizations and major actors will continue to be a, a significant players. Uh, and this will create a stable, gradual transition to a, a much better world. David Shum, thank you so much for coming on. Fascinating conversation. Thank you. It was really a blast to be here. Thanks, David. That was great. Tracy, I really loved that conversation. Yeah, that was really fascinating. And I think um, you hit upon something in one of your questions to David, which was just how early he was uh, when it comes to talking about a lot of the problems that we are talking about today, such as privacy concerns, such as the idea that, you know, our our private data is going to be used by nefarious corporations or or governments. He was just so early to all of that. It's it's kind of unreal. Like it was sort of at a time when a lot of that was in the realms of science fiction. Yeah. Something that I thought of that I hadn't really thought of before is like, obviously right now among mainstream pundits and the tech press and uh, analysts, privacy is a huge deal. And people are really concerned about how much data companies like Facebook and Twitter and all these and Google and all these entities have on us. And yet in the conversation and again, I think it's sort of like mainstream mainstream tech journalism. There's still quite a bit of dismissiveness, I would say, about the sort of crypto world or the blockchain world. They think a lot of it is uh, snake oil or just weirdos and cranks who live in Silicon Valley or off the grid somewhere. But when you figure or when you sort of think of the big picture that actually it's a lot of the crypto blockchain people that have been warning about privacy concerns long before most tech journalists had even it had occurred to them, it seems like it should be more a part of that conversation. Well, we've talked about that before, the notion that there are so many sort of value systems attached to cryptocurrencies. But there's also, I don't know, just based on the conversation we had with David, it feels like there's something deeper here. You know, he mentioned 
digital imperialism, it feels like the world right now is sort of having to choose between which technological and which government system it wants. And I say that as someone who's, you know, technically in in China at the moment and is sort of watching this unfold in, in various ways. But it does feel like we're at that moment of time where people are going to have to start making these decisions. Right. And there, it almost doesn't feel like there's a big distinction between a government system and a Facebook coin. Like whatever it is, it's some gigantic entity uh, upon which the individual has no control. One minor thing, uh, and maybe it's a subject of a future conversation, uh, David pointing out that the first time he came across proof of work, which is integral to uh, Bitcoin, was it was presented as a, uh, a spam fighting technology. I'm not sure how many people know that Bitcoin kind of came out of work to, to fight against spam. So it might be worth uh, unpacking that one at a later date. Yeah, Bitcoin, uh, fighting the good fight against junk email and uh, privacy concerns. That's that's something. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you can follow David on Twitter at Chum.com. And be sure to follow our producers on Twitter, Topher Forhez, he's at Forhez T, as well as Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson. And be sure to follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>